Welcome to In Search of Wisdom, a podcast by the Perennial Leader Project. In this episode, my guest is Ken Sheldon, the author of the new book, Freely Determined, What the New Psychology of the Self Teaches Us About How to Live. Ken is a professor of psychology at the University of Missouri. He is one of the founding researchers of positive psychology and a recipient of the Templeton Foundation Positive Psychology Prize. In this episode, expect to learn what it means to have free will, the downsides of a deterministic worldview, happiness and self-determination theory, how to practice self-compassion, wisdom in daily life, and so much more. I really enjoyed this conversation and hope you do as well. Without any further delay, please welcome the wise and gracious Ken Sheldon. All right. Well, Ken, welcome to In Search of Wisdom. Uh, thank you for having me on. I'm, I'm glad to be here. Uh, it's a pleasure. I've been looking forward to this. We've had it scheduled for a little bit. And today we're going to be chatting about your book, Freely Determined, What the New Psychology of the Self Teaches Us About How to Live. But before we get into the book specifically, would you mind sharing with the listeners maybe how this all got started? If you could go way back, how did you come to have an interest in psychology or whatever else comes to mind? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I can make that pretty short. Um, I, I was debating the free will question with my law professor father going way back into my uh, early teens. And I was always fascinated by that question and it sort of led me into psychology. Like in what way can we control or affect uh, what happens? And uh, when I got into psychology, I became interested in happiness and well-being. And so the question became, what brings happiness and well-being? And then I got hooked up with um, researcher Robert Emmons, who studies people's personal strivings, what they're trying to do in life. And that gave me a way to study people's goals and motivations um, that was very relevant to the free will question because it's what are people – what do they decide to strive for? What are they after in life? And then finally, I got uh, involved with self-determination theory, uh, Ryan and DC, which is a, a theory of optimal motivation which I applied to goals to develop a way to think about um, <clears throat> what are the right kinds of goals to pursue and how do you know when you're pursuing a goal that's really going to help you achieve uh, happiness and fulfillment. So that's the, that's the brief introduction to kind of where I've been. It's fascinating. I appreciate you sharing some background, and I enjoyed reading that in the beginning of the book. I'm picturing some of these conversations with your with your father. Um, really interesting stuff. Like, why do you think this has been a, I guess, a debate, a topic of interest for so so long? You know, it's a it's a bit strange. It is a bit strange, and I think it. Um reflects a um, conflict that scientists have, which is we want to be objective, you know, and not give in to wishful thinking. 
Uh, and we don't want to give into notions like soul, which is pretty unscientific. And if we go towards free will, it seems like we might be saying something unscientific, like that we can just decide what to do and with the, with no constraints, and it's entirely up to us. And um, so I think we're kind of wary about taking that step. And what I'm interested in doing is showing how it's actually a reasonable step that we evolved to have uh, what I'm calling free will, a, a certain definition we can get into if you like. Um, so I'm trying to reconcile this, these two aspects of science, that it's unscientific versus, well, maybe it can be scientific to talk about free will. Yeah, and I'd love to spend a bit of time... We generally try to define terms, and there's a, a few that come to mind, obviously, uh, that have already come up, the, the free will, determinism, and maybe another would be um, compatibilism. Could you take all the time you need to maybe unpack how we should uh, think about those three? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so um, I'm not a philosopher, but I've uh, delved quite a bit into it in writing the book. Um, determinism is the idea that um, our behavior is caused by factors we don't know about and can never know about and certainly don't control. And so we're looking for the mechanisms that determine our behavior. And from that sort of reductionistic perspective, we're going to drill down into the brain and the past and the neurochemicals. Uh, there's no room for a choosing self. Um, compatibilism is the philosophical position that, well, there might be some kind of room or consistency between a um, <clears throat> materialistic worldview and the notion of a phenomenal self, that is, us, the people we feel ourselves to be, um, having some effects or making some difference in the world. And so, uh, you know, it's about trying to find a middle way. <clears throat> the compatibilists are, are, they don't want to throw science out, but they also don't want to throw our common experience of deciding what to do every day. What shirt do I wear? What career do I pursue? We're constantly making decisions, and it seems really important to acknowledge that. And maybe there's ways to think of it that doesn't turn it into something magical or unscientific. Maybe it can be approached um, empirically. And how about um, the idea of free will? Like, how are you defining it in this uh in this book? Um, I see it as an evolved capacity of the human mind, and I, I can make some arguments for the evolved part of it, uh, but it's an ability to um, take stock of your condition, um, recognize when you're dissatisfied or you want to change something, start to ask yourself questions about what to do, you know, what's the, what's the right answer to this situation? And then uh, be able to recognize the answers that your non-conscious mind begins to provide you as a result of you having posed it these questions. So it's kind of a dialogue between conscious and unconscious processes where there's an important role, I think, in um, <clears throat> the questioning mind, the conscious questioning mind in directing what happens in its own brain that it doesn't know about. It doesn't control where those answers and intuitions are coming from, but it sets up that process by calling on the brain for work. And so I see free will as um, 
what we're doing when we're asking ourselves what we want and then listening to the answers we get and making a choice that that hopefully reflects uh, what's going to be good for us to do. Let me ask a, a curiosity question, Ken, as we've been talking about these three, determinism, free will, compatibilism. You don't really often hear about that middle way, as you described it, compatibilism. It, from a psychological perspective, not even just on this topic, but in general, why does it seem like we swing from one side to the other on so many topics? You know, like the pendulum doesn't really stop in the middle way um, too often, it seems. Well, you know, there's um, sociological forces. You want to um, have a position that's recognized and that tends to push us in more extreme directions to one side or the other. Um, the, the middle position tends to be unpopular. Actually, I wouldn't say that because compatibilism is the most popular uh, position on free will by philosophers. There's quite a bit of data on that. 70% and only 15% believe in uh, strict determinism. So it's, you know, it doesn't mean that it's correct, that it's popular, but it also means that it's not that rare um, to to try to take the middle position. And I think that's actually one definition of, of wisdom, that it's seeking balance, you know, between opposing polarities. And I think compatibilism is trying to do that with respect to this difficult question. Yeah, it's so interesting. As you say, like um, the majority of philosophers they're essentially in that middle way, but oftentimes it doesn't seem that they're labeled that way. Like someone that is essentially, if you explore it a bit, they're a compatibilist, but oftentimes they're labeled as a determinist. Um, I don't know. It's just kind of an interesting thing. The fact that that the middle way actually has a term compatibilism and it, it just, it, uh, it, it doesn't seem to come up as, as much in this particular debate, I guess, unless you're really, really into it like, uh, like you are and some people that study it. Well, people get are really opinionated about this question, and I've given up on trying to change anybody's mind about free <laughs> yeah. will. Uh, you know, if I just show you some ideas that are worth thinking about, I'm happy with that. Um, so, yeah, I think that's what it's about. It's, it's, it's a difficult question, and it's hard, hardest to try to actually solve it than to just take a rhetorical stance and, and fight off all, com all comers. Yeah. I, one thing I found really interesting is thinking about the deterministic worldview in the way of um, downsides, you know, that there are some some downsides or or some ways that maybe this particular worldview doesn't move you closer to a flourishing life. Could you talk a bit about some of the downsides as you see it of um, determinism? Yeah. Yeah, I think that if you really believe it, and I don't think many people do, I think you have to be pretty depressed to really believe it. You know, so even a, a hard and fast determinist does not feel like they are determined in their lives. They feel like they're making choices. It's just they take this epistemological stance that that's just an illusion. So as I was saying, if you really believe it, then you believe you don't have any choice in what you do. 
you believe that whatever happens is going to be affected not by your efforts, your goals. It's going to be affected by things you have no knowledge or control of. And that's really a pretty disempowering stance to take about you know living your life. So like I said, I don't think many people really do believe it uh, deep inside. But if they did, um, <clears throat> let me switch to the language of self-determination theory where I do a lot of my research. It says humans have a need for autonomy. That is, we need to feel like we are um, deciding and endorsing what we do, standing behind it. We're the, the choosers of it. And so if you believe in determinism, uh, you are basically saying, I am controlled by factors I have no impact over. That's almost a position of psychological helplessness from the stance of, say, learn helplessness theory. Um, Self-determination theory would, would say, well, you're not necessarily helpless. You just don't think you have any choice in what you're doing. And there's a, a decades of research showing that people who feel controlled in that way do not flourish. They are not happy. They don't grow. They're kind of stuck. It's like they need to wake up and realize, no, it really is you making the choices in your life. And the sooner you accept that, the better off you'll be. And it seems like that's, wouldn't say it's, um, you know, extremely, uh, frequent, but it seems like it's more possible than we realize even that thing of like learned helplessness. And I'm curious, like your thoughts in the way of, uh, maybe it's not quite as, as popular today as it was a decade ago, but, uh, Carol Dweck's research on like fixed mindset, growth mindset, it, it seems it's like, it's much more connected with the, the fixed mindset view or, or it could lead you that way. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, Dweck was saying something pretty similar to what self-determination theory says. Um, <clears throat> and I agree with, with a lot of, of, of her theory. Uh, I agree that if you think of yourself as an entity with characteristics that don't change, then you will be um, kind of unmotivated to try to grow and develop because ability is something you either have or you don't. Whereas the uh, mastery mindset you see it as something you can develop and you have to put in the effort. And so that goes well with the idea of using your free will to try to improve yourself and your life. You write in the book that um, not only might we have free will, we might have radical, even inescapable free will. Could you talk about this notion of, of maybe having too much freedom? I said that in the context of the fact that our brains are always making choices. That's their choice-making engines, and that's what they evolved to do. And so we can't really help but make choices, even if our choices are not to choose or to do nothing. That's still a choice. Um, everything we do is a choice. And I also said that in the context of existential philosophical perspectives. Um, Say Jean-Paul Sartre, that... Um, uh, existence precedes essence, that we make our own essence and we have to choose and create our lives. Eric Fromm uh, said that humans try to escape from freedom. They don't want to recognize their freedom because then they're responsible and they'll look for an authoritarian leader to tell them what to do so they don't have to acknowledge their essential freedom. 
So it's those two things that I'm coming from. Our brains are making choices. Ideally, we are as selves are involved in them and making good ones. And also, uh, whether we selves are involved or not, we're responsible. And that's kind of scary. And it, there's um, some motivation for some to maybe deny that fact. And you can even see the, the stance of determinism as an attempt to escape from freedom uh, in ter the terms that Eric Fromm writes about. I don't really stand behind that because I think it's a legitimate intellectual stance, but I think it can can get that far for some people. Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting. I made a note of something you write in the book of – Part of freedom is the freedom to make mistakes, um, which I don't know. It seems like it's overlooked, like in in my, you know, thinking my own like self reflection. But I, I'm curious. There are some philosophers, and and we've done previous episodes that maybe talk about the idea of becoming free. So it's um, you know you could maybe maybe Epictetus or like Spinoza you know or examples this this idea of and and maybe they're talking in the way of sometimes it seems like those mistakes you know are not always completely in our control like you know living uh, perfectly or you know choosing virtue consistently can be a challenging thing. Um, you know, how do you think about the project of becoming free, maybe deliberately making less mistakes or unvirtuous actions? I think it's helpful to distinguish between becoming free and becoming competent. And if we're mixing up competence with freedom, there can be competent slaves who have, feel no freedom. And so they're distinguishable yeah. psychological needs, according to self-determination theory. And so that theory says that uh, it's an important project to try to become more autonomous, to become more free. From my point of view, what that means is learn to recognize that you are free, and that'll help you to use your freedom better and more competently. But again, they're not the same thing. But it's confusing because if you use your freedom, you know, you make a choice and it doesn't turn well or you don't do well at the goal that you have selected, then you feel bad and maybe I shouldn't have pursued that goal. But whether or not you should pursue it is separate from how well you do at it. Um, <clears throat> and just because you don't do well at first doesn't mean you should stop. It might mean you should try harder. Uh, and it's, I think that's one of the most difficult things to to figure out is, okay, I'm not doing well at this goal. It's not really fulfilling me. I'm struggling. The situa situation is difficult. Should I quit and do something else? Should I disengage? And, you know, one stance could be, yes, I'm not doing well. That's a sign, a symptom that I'm not all the way behind it. I don't feel like I really chose it. It's not me. Uh, but on the other hand, it could be a symptom that you're not yet trying hard enough. So this mm. is sort of crux of when do you pull back versus throttle forward. And uh, <clears throat> I think that's one of the hardest things for us to tell, where some real wisdom is required. Yeah. No, I love that distinction in terms of uh, free, in terms of becoming competent. 
Um, I, I made another note that I think is connected to that idea of, um, I don't know, maybe making mistakes is not the, the right word, but in the way of, you know, living well, you talk about in a chapter, I believe it was the one on, uh, you know, what brings happiness, eudaimonia and things like that. And you say that, you know, the task of changing one's life to become more virtuous and ethical, to live out one's most ideal values may seem daunting. How do you think personally, like when you don't live up to those ideal values in the way of self-compassion, in the way of, you know, forgiveness and things like that to continue moving forward? Yeah, I think part of the difficulty of um, living authentically is that you have to be willing to um, acknowledge when you aren't living up to your ideals. And that can be very painful to acknowledge, I'm, I'm really being kind of shitty here right now. And yeah, my wife is right. I, I thought I was taking a principled stance, but really I'm just being kind of an asshole. That is painful to have to to recognize it, but um, I think it's critical because we live in selves that are incomplete. Uh, our selves are only models of something deeper, and so I think the task is to try to um, develop a self that more accurately reflects who we are in a deeper way and also reflects our growth potentials and and you know, really our self-actualization desire, you could use that term. And so it can be painful, it's difficult, it requires continual effort. But as long as you keep asking yourself the, the, the tough questions, you're going to get there because it's asking yourself questions is what drives minds forward, uh, according to uh, some recent research we've been doing. Asking yourself questions, even hard ones and painful ones, gives you information that you didn't have before. And then you can use that information to make better decisions. Mm. So I think that's a whole stance towards living. I'm writing a chapter on authenticity and free will right now, trying to connect those topics. And it seems like you can't really do it without talking about uh, an existential courage to um, probe to, to be, try to seek more awareness and find the truth of your experience and go beyond um, the maybe limited self-concept that you're currently stuck with uh, to make something bigger. How do you think about, um, like in philosophical traditions, this idea of living an examined life, maybe philosophical journaling as a particular practice of asking yourself these questions that you're talking about? Like, how do you think about in your own life that that self-reflection piece? Is that just on the go or is that something you'd recommend taking like intentional time to do? Yeah, I think taking intentional time is a great idea uh, because you can develop the habit and practice of noticing what you're feeling and ask yourself what's next. And so I've, I've written that mindfulness meditation is a great way to shut up the verbal mind and listen to what's bubbling up from underneath. Um, journaling practices, I think, are awesome because you are actively processing information and asking yourself the next question. 
So I, I think uh, you really have to have that forward process of taking in the new information, using it, integrating it into something bigger and becoming hopefully more than you were before or closer to who you always were <laughs> underneath. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you mentioned the existentialists earlier and, um, you know, this idea of, of too much freedom and there's just a choice after, after choice. Um, and a lot of the existentialists write about this, uh, thing of anxiety, you know, that all of these choices essentially like create some anxieties, maybe, uh, Rollo may the, the meaning of anxiety, like, how do you think about navigating that, you know, with all these different choices and the, the bubbling up of anxiety, what do, what do we do with that and how should we maybe think about it? Yeah. Well, that's a big question. Uh, not something that I, um, specifically research, but I think anxiety can tell us a number of different things. Uh, one is it's just part of the human condition. The wisdom of insecurity, Alan Watts talked about it, where we just don't know how things are going to turn out. We don't know what the right choice is, but we have to get on with it anyway. And that's kind of an anxious place to be. And I think some people try to hide from that anxiety by seeking refuge in a comfortable routine or, you know, a leader who tells them what to think and do. But um, you can also use anxiety as your friend, uh, as the symptom, the dissatisfaction that tells you um, this isn't it. What you're doing now, you need to change something and maybe find something better. So I, I think there's a balance in how we can use our anxiety, not to hide from it and shut down because of it, but to use it as a, a signal that we're on um, – we're on ground that's a little um, uncertain. You know, and maybe we're taking some risks, but I think we have to do that in order to grow. Um, we just have to take our best shot and then deal with what happens and hopefully learn from it. I, I wonder this like free will determination thing of like you find yourself at a particular crossroad. I think like as you're talking, uh, like Kierkegaard says something like, um, you know, to venture causes this anxiety that we've been talking about, like, but not to venture, like is to lose yourself in a way. And I wonder if like that determinism view, it seems like finding yourself at that crossroad, wouldn't it lead someone to not venture? You know, it's like, like removing this, the agency and the, and the freedom, it seems like it would make it much more likely for us to, you know, take, take the road of not venturing or not making a decision. That's a really good point. And I think that if um, you're taking a sort of reductionist view of the mind, that it's all mechanisms down in the machinery, um, then you wouldn't really expect people to approach anxiety or uncertainty. Uh, and this goes back to drive theory way back in the 1940s that uh, we don't do anything until it, anxiety forces us to go out and look for food or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. But there's been a, a revision of that starting back in the late 60s in psychology that portrays us instead as active explorers of the world, following intrinsic motivations, curiosity, 
and that this uh, desire to explore um, is critical to our cognitive and emotional development. And so I would agree with Kierkegaard. If we um, suppress or ignore that part of ourselves, we have given up on who we could be in a, in a deeper way or in the future. And we have, we've chosen stasis. I, I think, and I think a lot of people kind of do that uh, without even recognizing it. Uh, it's hard to, to break out of it. Um, you get a bunch of defensive structures that ward off anything that might make you think or feel an unpleasant way. It might take a trauma or maybe a psychedelic experience to, to really, uh, bust a person free from uh, that kind of stasis. And I was wondering if you could connect the dots a little bit with, with happiness and, um, and free will. You know, you have this chapter, What Brings Happiness. Could you talk about the connection there as you see it? Yeah, there's a lot of ways to talk about happiness. And one way is the um, self-determination theory way, which says that we are happy when we meet our psychological needs. And the three needs, according to the theory, are autonomy, competence, and relatedness. Uh, we want, we're happy when we do what we want, when we do it well, and when we connect with others in the process. And that's pretty intuitive, right? But what does autonomy mean? It means um, feeling free in what you're doing, feeling that you're acting with free will. Uh, and the tricky thing about autonomy is that we can also feel controlled. So we're doing something, but we don't feel it's us doing it. Um, then we're not meeting that autonomy need, and we won't be happy as a result. So we have to be kind of growing. We have to be expanding, making choices, the things that we really care about, um, trying to get better at enacting those choices, connecting better to people, and that'll lead us to happiness. So from that point of view, the, the search for greater autonomy is the search for um, to experience, to experience the free will that you already have. And so what we need to do is recognize and embrace the free will rather than um, kind of hide from it and maybe feel controlled by um, factors we can't affect or um, influence. Do you think this is why, like, um, you know, some figures, maybe like William James or Immanuel Kant, people that have come up in previous episodes, maybe say that um, yeah, we can't know for sure one way or the other, but the best approach is to, you know, act as, as if we do have free will? I agree with that. Um, even if determinism is real and free will is an illusion— it's an illusion that we need. And it, maybe it's just a placebo effect. If you believe the pill is the medicine, then the, it works like the medicine. If you believe that you have free will, you work like you do have free will. And, and your life turns out more the way you would have chosen. Uh, and so maybe that's not free will, but it's close enough from a, a practical living perspective. Yeah. It seems like, um, maybe not with everything, but with some things, there can be a bit of a, a spectrum of, uh, like, and sometimes I think about this in the way of agency, like the existentialist, 
this idea of becoming every day, you know, it's like they're on that far spectrum of really maximizing their their agency. And then some of us, maybe like myself, I'm, you know, I believe that I have agency, but maybe not to the to to that level. How do you think about like moving our way close, you know, coming to realize our, our agency. I'm not quite sure how to ask the question. I think you get the the gist of it, but like increasing our, our level of agency or moving closer to this, this thing like Kant and James are, are talking about like this belief that we, you know, we have control to lead our lives. That is difficult. You ask hard questions. Yeah, yeah sorry. <laughs> um, I mean, I think it just takes practice. Um, you can think about it in terms of identity. A foreclosed identity is somebody that's never asked questions and they just do what they their parents did and they're fine, upstanding members of society, but they never break through to additional possibilities for themselves. Uh, in order to move to what's called achieved identity, you have to ask yourself questions and um, maybe break free of who you always thought you were. And so that's an active process. Development is an active process, uh, and we have to practice it. Um, so, of course, we don't have total agency because, you know, there's always limits and constraints. And if you're living in in um, um, a war-torn country, there's a lot of limits to your agency. Uh, my point of view is that, yes, we're always in a situation that can be great to really awful, but still it's up to us, whatever that situation is, to uh, make the best of it um, and figure out what the choices will be that um, maximize the possible outcomes. And even if there's no good outcome, we can choose to uh, accept our fate uh, uh, Victor Frankl, of course, wrote about you can always you're always free to choose your attitude, even in the prison camp, and even where you might be executed if you express it. Um, there's always at least that much freedom. Yeah, yeah. Um, you said they're a- achieved identity. Could you say more uh, about that, Ken? Yeah, I'm kind of I'm veering all over the place in the, the psychological <laughs> literature, but that is a. Um, an idea by James Marcia, uh, building off of Ericksonian Eric Erickson's uh, stage theory of lifespan development, and the idea is that identity needs to be constructed. Uh, Erickson wrote a book called Identity, Youth, and Crisis, talking about how youth, especially, are at a point in their lives where they need to either break through what's been given them or told them or just accept it. And maybe they can't really accept it and then they end up in crisis. So uh, identity achievement is something that we're doing through our life that, um, again, requires our own active conscious efforts as part of the process. Oh, I appreciate that, Ken. Um, and as we start to to wrap up here, I got a couple questions uh, related to wisdom, obviously. And the first is, you know, how do you define or or think about wisdom in daily life? 
So you really mean daily life, not in theory. <laughs> yeah, you can share both, though. Yeah. Um, well, the daily life question is a good one because I don't think of myself as especially wise. Like, my wife has way more practical wisdom than I do. Um, but in either case, I think about it in terms of trying to figure out what's really the best thing to do and then do it. And so it's a particular type of wisdom that I'm interested in, which is um, the ability to select the optimal next course of action or the next goal or the next direction in one's life. And I think that's really maybe the hardest question uh, for a lot of people. You know, they feel kind of stuck or they're doing something they hate and they can never get around to doing what they really want. Um, so solving this problem of choosing wisely a life, a life direction or even one's daily responses to, to what happens. Um, I know a bit about that and, and some of the things that can get in the way of it. Would you mind sharing a bit of, uh, you know, anything that comes around obstacles to like choosing wisely? I think the main ob obstacle is that uh, we might live in an identity that does not adequately represent who we are in some deeper way. So you are, so let's take an example. Somebody there, they were always going to go to med school. That's what their parents, they set them up for it. There they are. They're about to graduate from med school. And they, they are terrified because they're about, they're going to go on this career where um, they hate the sight of blood and they don't actually care that much about helping people. Maybe they want to be an artist instead. Um, so I think a, a big part of our struggle is that we um, live inside of outmoded self-concepts that we need to maybe shed, like a, a butterfly sheds its chrysalis, the, the caterpillar, and then comes out as a butterfly. That's not very scientific. It's kind of rainbows and unicorns. <laughs> but um, I think that's what's usually in the way, is that we're defending an identity that's not cutting it for us. And it's difficult to get to the place or the crux where just put that behind you and you move on uh, in some important way. And final question I, I have for you is around the search for wisdom. You know, I, I'm curious how you make sense of the search, the desire, the call, whatever you would want to call it for wisdom, greater understanding. Like I'm, I'm thinking of uh, you as a young person, these conversations, you know, with your father in some way, some sort of question grabs a hold of us or, you know, there's a, there's a, an itch we need to scratch. Like how do we make sense of all of that? I guess I would come back to an evolutionary perspective and say that it's part of what the human mind is, is includes a motivated desire to make use of itself to get greater knowledge, more integrated understanding, and then to apply that knowledge to live a better, more happy and productive life, more adaptive, to function in a more adaptive way. 
So I think um, the desire for wisdom is really a desire for knowledge and understanding. It's it's what drives science. It's what drives us within our lives. Ideally, if we have sort of managed to stay on an, on kind of a, a growth track. So I don't think it's trivial or insignificant. I think it's the critical, and, and it's the maybe the main characteristic of the human mind that has brought us so far. Uh, of course, we still need to work on a lot of things uh, in the future. Yeah. Well, beautiful. Well, this has been great, Ken. And again, your book is freely determined. Is there any way you would, um, anywhere you'd point listeners that are maybe interested in, in learning more about you or, or your other work in the world? Well, I have a website at the University of Missouri with CV and stuff. <clears throat> I've written a couple of blogs on free will that are uh, published in Psychology Today. I wrote a short article in Psyche magazine. So if you didn't want to dive in as far as ordering the book or whatever, that could give you a start into some of my thinking and maybe uh, you could then go further after that. Well, beautiful. Well, I highly recommend the book. I've really enjoyed it. It's uh, it's fascinating. And again, I'm, I'm grateful for you taking the time to come on and, and chat about it here. So, Professor Ken Sheldon, thank you so much for coming on In Search of Wisdom. Thank you. Thank you for listening. I hope you found something useful. If so, I encourage you to put what you heard into practice. You can learn more at perennialleader.com. There you'll find links to show notes. Until next time, be wise and be well.